Novartis, committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients and their families. Online at Novartis.com. Novartis, think what's possible. Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting May 10th. I'm Steve Mursky. On this week's podcast, we're going to talk about conservation. The U.S. Senate has designated May 11th as Endangered Species Day. For a lot of senators, that might mean eating them. I don't know. But in keeping with that theme, last week I attended a conference at the American Museum of Natural History here in New York City called Conserving Birds in Human-Dominated Landscapes. I spoke with a couple of the presenters there, Andrew Baumford and Rex Johnson, and we'll hear from them. And this past weekend, I had a chance to talk to Alan Rabinowitz one of the great big cat researchers and conservation specialists, and we'll play that interview. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Andrew Baumford from the Zoology Department at the University of Cambridge. In 2003, Scientific American magazine named Baumford one of the top 50 science leaders for his work studying the economics of habitat preservation. I spoke with him after his talk at the museum. Andrew, thanks uh, so much for talking to us today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Your talk was basically about the, the state of the world's birds. How are birds doing? Well, in general, the news isn't good. In general, um, birds aren't doing very well. Um, and that's evidenced at a variety of, uh, in a variety of different ways. So if you look at extinction rates or threat rates, uh, those are generally uh, on the rise. So in that sense, we should be worried. And we should also be worried in terms of... Uh, uh, at, po- at the level of populations too, most bird populations that are monitored around the world um, are in decline. Um, but it's not um, uh, a completely uh, negative picture. There are also some species that are doing uh, somewhat better. Which species in particular are, are doing okay right now? Uh, so they probably fall into two main groups. One are uh, highly threatened species, uh, which uh, some of which have been the subject of intensive uh, hands-on uh, recovery plans, and some of those are responding quite well uh, to active human intervention to, to to help them out, and there are a few encouraging examples of that around the world. Uh, and then the other group are a bunch of uh, birds uh, which you can think of as being opportunistic and which are able uh, uh, finding new ways of making a living for themselves in human-dominated landscapes uh, all by themselves, and some of those are on the increase as well. What species specifically are we talking about there? Uh, a range of different species, uh, quite often uh, alien invasives, as we call them, creatures from uh, other countries uh, or other systems that find themselves uh, in certain human-dominated landscapes here in uh, New York. Obviously, starlings and house sparrows are doing quite well. Ironically, both those species aren't doing very well in the wild where they came from back in Britain. So there's um, some creatures like that. There's also some some, some native species that learn uh, new tricks. Uh, and uh, one of those, for example, in Britain is the... Uh, wood pigeon, uh, which up until recently was a declining uh, bird in our countryside, uh, but which has learnt uh, a few new tricks in the last few years, which is uh, helping it to increase its numbers. In particular, it's um, learnt to feed on uh, oilseed rape, which is a relatively new crop grown in Britain. So it's moving out from the woodlands into the fields and doing relatively well there. What, what had it been its primary food? Uh, it, it fed on uh, fruits and so on uh, in woodlands, uh, but it's moved out from woodlands into fields, uh, and it's doing quite well on uh, new crops. Um, uh, and then it's also moving into towns and cities where it's becoming as common almost as rock pigeons, um, uh, a traditional uh, dove of the uh, of towns and cities, um, where it's uh, managed to learn the trick of feeding on um, the uh, leftovers of uh, revelers the night before. 
revelers the night before, the various foodstuffs left out, left out on the street. Uh, that's right. Uh, and those would seem um, maybe to be on the increase in certain parts of Britain. Those foodstuffs may have been pre-digested. Uh, that could, yes, that could be the case. <laughs> yeah. um, people who live in big cities may see thousands of birds on any given day. But they might all be the same bird. They might all be pigeons, or they might all be house sparrows or starlings. Why is it uh, not necessarily a good thing just because you happen to see some birds in large numbers? Uh, that's because um, bird variety uh, matters in all sorts of ways. It matters uh, ecologically, um, and it also matters to us as people. So uh, although uh, we might enjoy seeing large numbers of pigeons, uh, or, or starlings or whatever, uh, we may often uh, ourselves enjoy seeing a variety much more, and I, that's probably a sign that our, our systems are in better, better shape as a result. The biodiversity is itself a sign of the health of the system? Um, it's not quite as simple as that, in that you can, make, you, you, you can increase biodiversity, biodiversity artificially by having more alien invaders in a system, for example, um, and losing out some of the things that may be uh, particularly special uh, to an area. So uh, in, in, in some ways, uh, having a diverse system by itself isn't uh, um, uh, necessarily a good thing, but it's not a bad rule of thumb, perhaps. There was a point made um, at this meeting we were at, uh, which was uh, an extremely interesting one. The question was raised, as uh, to whether we should, as conservationists, be concerned uh, always about having rich uh, uh, biodiverse systems or not. Uh, in wild habitats, that's probably not the case. Very often we should be most concerned about having uh, the species that should be there, whether that's a rich assemblage or not. But the point was made that in urban assemblages, maybe rich, uh, rich communities are good because they present people, and that's after all where most people are, with um, a wide variety of nature. And that's very important perhaps for um, increasing their enthusiasm, uh, their interest in nature, um, and the fundamental point, of course, being that if people aren't enthusiastic about nature, and most people live in towns, that's where they're going to encounter it, um, then uh, there may be less interest in, in conserving it, not just in towns, but, be, but further afield. Get out into nature. Get out um, uh, yourself, go and see things, enjoy them, learn about them, and the more you learn, the more you will enjoy them. And then once you're doing that... Um, Go and take a friend or a child um, out into nature too. Um, because, as I say, if we don't um, uh, know about things, uh, then we won't care about them and things won't improve. How many species did you see in Central Park earlier today? I know you went out for a little while. <laughs> I guess we saw about 25 species. The fun thing was that um, seeing some species which are a real problem in the UK, like grey squirrels here in their native habitat, and then some species which are in trouble, native species in the UK which are in trouble, uh, like uh, uh, house sparrows and starlings doing very well in Central Park. Great to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Steve. The website of the American Museum of Natural History is www.amnh.org. We'll be right back. Want to share some thoughts about the podcast? Let us know what you think by participating in our survey at www.siam.com slash research. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. 
Story 1. The New York Times reports that, quote, the Bush administration is seeking to develop a powerful ground-based laser weapon that would use beams of concentrated light to destroy enemy satellites in orbit, end quote. Story 2. A cat named Sneakers was found in Sacramento 10 years after it was lost in Seattle when somebody scanned the cat and found an implanted microchip with the owner's information. Story 3. A Vatican astronomer says that the physical evidence convinces him that the world was created in six days. And story four, King Tut has been reunited with his mummified penis, which was reported missing in 1968. We'll be back with the answer, but first, another presenter at the Bird Conference was Rex Johnson of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He's the leader of the Habitat and Population Evaluation Team of the service's Division of Bird Habitat Conservation. We didn't get a chance to talk at the meeting, so I gave him a call later at his office in Fergus Falls, Minnesota. Dr. Johnson, thanks for talking to us today. Steve, it's a pleasure to be with you. I heard your talk at the Museum of Natural History here in New York last week, the American Museum of Natural History. Let me get that right. You seem to be saying things I haven't heard anywhere else about a more strategic approach to habitat conservation. You actually called it a corporate approach. Can you talk about that? I'd be happy to, Steve. Um, We're going to uh, be expending more of our resources on developing conservation strategies to tell managers in any agency, not just the Fish and Wildlife Service, where they can get the biggest impact, the biggest benefit for migratory birds at the lowest cost to their management agency and to society. And we're going to be focusing on building multidisciplinary partnerships that go beyond just biologists to include all of the other um, uh, disciplines that shape the landscape, rural sociology, economy, uh, economics, uh, hydrologists. Um, All of those people have something to contribute to the process of conservation because conservation, first and foremost, is figuring out how we can keep humans and wildlife on the landscape in a sustainable fashion. At the talk that I heard you give last week, you you specifically mentioned being more effective and more efficient. You want to talk in specifics, any cases that that you can bring up that illustrate those concepts? Well, when I talk about efficiency, what I'm talking about is getting the biggest population response for the least amount of money or the least amount of acres of habitat because acres translate into dollars in the conservation world. We will take models that relate a species uh, of migratory bird to its habitat, and we will apply that to data using what's called a geographic information system. And we'll identify areas that have greater or lesser potential to affect populations. Uh, obviously the areas that have the greatest potential to affect populations are the the same areas where we'd like to be doing management uh, if we have willing landowners, people who are willing to work with us in those landscapes. The the difference in conservation efficiency between a high-efficiency landscape and a low-efficiency landscape can be as much as 4, 6, 10 to 1. So we can be much more efficient in the way we spend taxpayer dollars if we're strategic in our approach to conservation, which means identifying where those hotspots are, reaching out to the landowners that are working in those hotspots, marketing our programs to them. That's what I mean by a strategic approach to conservation. And it, it seems fairly uh, 
straightforward. I mean, if you were in advertising, you'd want to put the ads where the largest number of people can see them, and this seems like the same kind of concept. It's exactly the same concept. In fact, one of the things that we need to do a better job of is marketing our conservation programs. It's amazing to me, living here in the Midwest, being surrounded by farmers, uh, how how many farmers are unaware of conservation programs that could really make their operations much more cost-effective. How could they uh, take advantage of conservation to actually save money? Well, one of the ways that uh, we routinely work with landowners to help them be more profitable is we help them retire their most marginal agricultural land, the land that takes a lot of input on an annual basis in terms of fertilizer and fuel and seed, and retire that to perennial cover, such as grasslands or woodlands or wetlands. The result is that they have lower inputs, but because there are government subsidies for the uh, restoration of those perennial habitats, they make money off of those marginal lands anyway. What the public gets from that is we get cleaner water, we get less flood damage, we get higher wildlife populations, and a whole host of other environmental functions that we don't routinely think of as legitimate business goods and services, but they are. And it's reasonable for us to think about compensating landowners for providing those goods and services. I think a lot of people may still, when they think about the Fish and Wildlife Service, if they do at all, they may think of it as the place you go for your hunting or fishing licenses. Well, let's be clear right up front, Steve. You go to the state agencies for your hunting and fishing licenses. You come to the Fish and Wildlife Service for a migratory bird hunting stamp, the duck stamp. That's all we sell. Which I own, by the way. I've been buying them every year for about 10 years. And I would encourage every one of your listeners to go out and do the same thing because that's the primary source of funding the Fish and Wildlife Service has for the conservation of habitat. Let me talk about that for a minute. For $15, everybody you get a duck stamp, which allows you to get into every single national wildlife refuge in the country for the entire year for free at that point. It's incredibly cost-effective if you're a user of the refuges. And the duck stamp money, which goes into a fund we call the Migratory Bird Conservation Fund, is the only really reliable source of funding that the Fish and Wildlife Service has for land acquisition through our national national wildlife refuge system. So we're very interested in, in, in as many people as possible purchasing that duck stamp. It is, by the way, matched uh, almost dollar for dollar for import taxes on uh, firearms and ammunition. Uh, in the past, of course, therefore, uh, it, it's obvious that, that, that hunters have sponsored most of the land acquisition to the National Wildlife Refuge System. We're all environmentalists. Anybody who cares about wildlife, fish, healthy ecosystems, for whatever reason, whatever their motivation. We're all environmentalists. We all have a common stake. Dr. Johnson, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. Steve, it's been a pleasure talking to you. For more info on buying $15 duck stamps, go to the Fish and Wildlife Service's duck stamp site, www.fws, for Fish and Wildlife Service, .gov, slash duck stamps. We'll be right back. Novartis. Committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients and their families. Online at Novartis.com. Novartis. Think what's possible. 
Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one: The Bush administration wants to create satellite-destroying lasers. Story two: A cat found after ten years through implanted microchip. Story three: A Vatican astronomer says the world was made in six days. Story four: King Tut's penis found. Times up. Story one is true. The Times reports that the administration does want to create lasers to kill satellites. According to the Times, quote, the largely secret project, parts of which have been made public through Air Force budget documents submitted to Congress in February, is part of a wide-ranging effort to develop space weapons, both defensive and offensive. End quote. Using these lasers, we punch a hole in the protective layer around the world. Story two is true. Sneakers the cat was found ten years after she disappeared one day through her implanted microchip. The Seattle Post Intelligencer paper reports. If you want to know what she's been up to, you're just going to have to remain curious. And when Doctor Evil gets angry, Mister Bigglesworth gets upset. Story four is true. A CAT scan revealed that King Tut's penis, which had become separated from his body at some point, was lying loose in the sand right near where it belonged. The British paper, The Guardian, headlined the story: "Tut Remembered." Somebody's playing a prank on me. Honestly, it's not mine. All of which means that story three about the Vatican astronomer saying the world was made in six days is totally bogus. What is true, however, is that Vatican astronomer brother Guy Consolmagno was quoted in the Scottish paper The Scotsman as saying that the belief in a six-day creation was actually a form of superstitious paganism. The brother also said, "Quote: Knowledge is dangerous, but so is ignorance." End quote. And as for papal infallibility, brother Guy said that it doesn't mean that the Pope has quote magic power. End quote. It means that quote somebody has got to be the boss, the final authority. End quote. I'm the boss. Need the info. Next up, Alan Rabinowitz, one of the world's great cat experts. I ran into him last Saturday at a ceremony dedicating the John Baylor Memorial Biodiversity Reserve Area in Westchester, New York. John was the curator of reptiles at the Bronx Zoo and a great guy. Rabinowitz is the director of science and exploration for the Wildlife Conservation Society and concentrates on cats. I had a small voice recorder with me, so I asked him what he was up to. Setting up. The world's largest tiger reserve in northern Myanmar. It's called the Hukong Valley Tiger Reserve. It's almost nine thousand square miles, the size of the state of Vermont. It's taken me ten years to get it established. It is now established. The government's on board. The local people are on board. Myanmar is a very difficult country to be working in because I have to balance dictators with insurgents, with completely remote. Tribal ethnic groups, but it, but it's working. The other big endeavor I'm working on, which is even bigger than that, is setting up a jaguar corridor from Mexico to Argentina. We have learned recently, within the last couple of years, that a genetic corridor already exists. In other words, the DNA of jaguar ja- sampling jaguars throughout their range from Mexico to Argentina. It is showing us that, contrary to what we were thinking, somehow every few generations at least one jaguar seems to be moving between what seem to be disjunct, fragmented populations. They're getting through the the human landscape: citrus groves, rubber plantations,、uh, 
cattle ranches, backyard vegetable gardens. They could use those areas. And all you need is one jaguar every approximately 100 years to get between populations. A young dispersing male who's got to find his own area. And you maintain genetic stability between between populations. You get genetic mixing so that you, you don't get have enough any genetic bottlenecks. Mixing. The number one cause of extinction is is too much inbreeding, is genetic fragmentation, loss of genetic uh, diversity. That's the number one cause of extinction. So by if we can maintain, if you can somehow maintain genetic mixing, then you're essentially doing the most you can do to save a species. And what we learned is that this already is happening without our realizing it. We're coming into it kind of backwards to where we are. We're actually now trying to find these corridors. So through, through, through GIS and through mapping, we have, we have actually mapped out what the likely jaguar corridors are, which they're using, between populations from Mexico to Argentina. Right, because if you can find the ones that already exist, you don't have to set new ones up to accomplish exactly. what you want these already to be doing. And it's a hugely powerful instrument with the governments. It's, it's one thing saying, save that as a protected area, it's got tons of jaguars. That's easy. Well, it's not easy, but it's doable. It's different now, and in some ways it's not as hard as that, actually, saying, look, Jaguars are moving from that big, beautiful park you got in the north to that big, beautiful park you got in the south. We're not asking you to set up any new protected areas. What we're asking you to do is protect this jaguar corridor by keeping intact, which will help the local people and local economies, keeping intact current land use practices. In other words, don't build in that area don't build an industrial park. Don't build a four-lane highway. Don't allow a complete, huge agricultural endeavor that clear-cuts the whole area and wipes it out. Let the local people do what they're doing. Let us help them. We can even help them do it, do it better and further. But let the let the let the local populace do their current land use practices, and that re- remains a jaguar corridor. And they can't kill the jaguar. The tourism potential is phenomenal because then what what you have is the possibility of different countries throughout a region having a kind of Jaguar Appalachian Trail where people can actually be walking through beautiful forests and then get out into someone's field, walk through a cattle pasture, and you're on the Jaguar Trail. Mm-hmm. You're on the Jaguar Corridor. I mean, it's a neat thing. Let me ask you uh, one, one other quick question. How does a kid from Brooklyn become one of the world's big cat experts? And I mean big in both senses. Yeah. Well, I never saw, saw a cow until I went to, to college in Maryland. I actually never saw a cow in a field. I, I, right, you saw I knew what a cow was. Cows, right. But the reason I became attracted to animals, and I knew that this was what I wanted to be doing, was because as a young child, I, I stuttered very, very badly. So badly that at that time in the New York City school system, they put me into classes for retarded children, for disturbed children. Because back at that time, they didn't know what ADD was or dyslexia. We were all put in those classes for disturbed children. So I grew up my entire childhood through public schools, realizing that the outside world of human beings believed I was not one of them. I was not normal. But one thing a stutterer, two things a stutterer can do and not stutter. One is sing. 
Right. Like Mel tell us. Right, right. Or they can talk to animals. I used to come home every single day after being in a class for disturbed children where I just would stop talking at all because I knew I wasn't disturbed. And I would talk to my little pets, chameleons, hamsters, snakes, garter snakes. And I bonded with animals and I swore to them. I mean, maybe they're, they're the ones who I told my, my dreams to and my hopes. And they're the ones who I promised that uh, if I ever got my voice back, which I didn't think I would at the time, that I would try to help them get their voice because that was the barrier and that was my barrier with human beings. Uh-huh. And then why cats specifically? Cats specifically, not because I have some huge affinity towards them because in fact I'm allergic to cats, but they are the top predator. They're the top. If I can save, if I can, because governments will save their big cats. No government, no politician wants to be the president or the minister who lost their tigers, who lost their jaguars, lost their lions. And they all feel that these are important parts of each country's culture. If I can save lions, tigers, jaguars, leopards, cheetahs, you are saving most of the large global ecosystems of the world with everything else that goes in it. I'm not trying to save cats. I'm trying to save wild lands with everything inside of it that goes with it, from the ants to the butterflies to the big cats. But you don't save it by saying you got to protect this because it's got great diversity of ants. Uh, you you save it by saying you want to save tigers in Burma. This is the place to do it. But that nine thousand square miles ha- has elephants and clouded leopards and wild dogs and and incredible butterflies and incredible orchids and new bamboo species and new rattan. It's got everything. But that's not what I use. I I use the big cats. Sounds like he found his voice. The Wildlife Conservation Society is at www.wcs.org. One of the other speakers at the dedication of the John Baylor area remembered his first meeting with John. Baylor at the time was in the field putting radio transmitters on turtles. I happened to be walking in the back and I saw this guy standing on the dock and um, I was curious because he was uh, putting this device on the back of a turtle. And then he lets the turtle go. And immediately thereafter, before the turtle could disappear, I see him pick up this device and pull up this antenna. I said, my God, he's going to blow up the turtle. (laughs) And I honestly believe that. I honestly believe that John is going to blow up the turtle. I started running to him, you know. And I... Shortly thereafter, John gave me a full education about what he did in this park, and I should mind my own business. (laughs) We'll be right back. Enjoy a free preview issue of Scientific American Magazine, plus a gift. Visit www.siam.com today. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember that Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. I like animals. Maybe I'd be a vet. An evil vet? No. Maybe like work in a petting zoo. An evil petting zoo? You always do that! <laughs>